And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew and verse 24 of chapter 13. You can find this on page 1126 in the Pew Bible, Matthew 13, verse 24. We're going to be looking at a particular parable. Chapter 13 of Matthew contains seven parables which teach about the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. And two of these parables, Jesus actually gives a little explanation. One is the parable of the seed that is sown on different soils. And then the other one is the parable of the wheat and the tares that we're going to be looking at. And so what we'll do is read verses 24 to 30, which is where he shares the parable. And then we'll skip down to verse 36 to 43, where Jesus gives a little explanation of the parable uh, to his disciples. This parable, I think, says something profound and important to us, helping us understand the world in which we live. Uh, Commentators note that uh, there there are a number of theories about what's going on in this parable. Most of them are uh, quite off base, and so we won't spend much time on those, but I will mention a couple of bad ideas that are out there. But I think that the the central truth is very clear here and helps us see Uh, that this is a world in which the Lord has allowed evil to exist for a time, but that he has a good reason for doing that. So let's look at God's word here, beginning at verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop... Then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then we'll skip down to verse 36 where Jesus gives a little explanation. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to our hearing this evening. Well, we certainly are being bombarded with lots of bad news right now. Images of this war in Ukraine, uh, spiking crime, runaway inflation, uh, dishonest and incompetent politicians are 
regularly being reported on. On top of all that, I don't know if you noticed last week, there was a tragic car accident in which uh, a golf team from a school in New Mexico uh, was hit head-on in their 15-passenger van by a 13-year-old driving a pickup truck, and seven people uh, were killed in the van as well as the two people in the truck. And these kinds of things remind us that we live in a fallen and broken world in which evil is very much with us and present. You might say it's thriving. And so that raises a question for us. Given what Jesus says and what the Bible says, what we've even been saying here tonight as we've been singing Psalm 72, if Jesus is ruling over all things, if Jesus is on his throne, if Jesus has brought his kingdom into the world, how is it that evil continues to flourish? And this is the implied question that Jesus is answering in this parable. Jesus has begun his ministry, and and, and he's come, and people are beginning to recognize him as the Messiah. And yet, what's the response? That the religious leaders are against him. Uh, The the, the local civil leaders are against him. Uh, It seems like everybody is against him, and he's not doing anything uh, to impose his will on the world. And so perhaps people are beginning to think, well, are you really the Messiah? Is your kingdom really here? Do you really have the power that we think you do? And I think those are questions that we can still be wrestling with today when we see the pervasive power of evil in our world. Lord, are you really on your throne? Are you really in control? Are you really paying attention to what's happening? And if we look at this parable and understand its teaching, we'll get what I hope is our main point this evening, that Jesus allows evil to exist for a time, and he does that for the sake of his elect. But you and I need to rest assured that evil will be dealt with fully and finally, and that his his people will bask in his presence forever. And uh, children, if you like to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of this man who goes out to plant these seeds in his field or uh, and what happens what, what grows up and listen as we talk about what that means and how we can apply that well the first thing I want us to notice this evening is that Jesus is at work building his kingdom uh, this parable begins as do all the others in this chapter uh, the kingdom of heaven is like and so Jesus is talking about his kingdom, this extension of God's rule that's come from heaven now into, onto the earth in a new and fresh way in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. If you were to go back in Matthew to chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus is baptized and he begins his earthly ministry, what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this, this kingdom of God is coming to earth in a new way in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think for an observant Jew, a faithful Jew, they would have understood this reference to the kingdom of heaven. Now, we referred to this earlier in the service when we were, uh, read our call to worship from Daniel chapter 2. Because in that vision, which they would have known, there are these kingdoms of the earth. There are uh, sequential kingdoms that are going to dominate the earth. And yet in the midst of those kingdoms, God is going to establish a new kingdom from heaven. 
And it's pictured in that vision as a small rock that comes in and crushes the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And it grows and it grows until it says it becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth. Again, I put this as a cross-reference on the back of your outline from Daniel 2.44. In the days of these kings, and that would have been understood to be the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And so Jesus is quite conscious about saying, this kingdom is here. I'm the king of that kingdom. It's mine, and I'm the one who's building it. And just in a few chapters in this book of Matthew, in chapter 16, when Peter uh, makes that great confession of faith, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, and I will say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock that is on Peter's confession of faith, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus' kingdom is here, and he is building it. And in his explanation of what the parable means, in verse 37, he says, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. And again, here is a reference to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's given this vision of one like a son of man who comes and stands before the ancient of days. And that was Jesus' favorite phrase to describe himself throughout the Gospels. He is the Son of Man, making reference to this divine person that's referred to in the book of Daniel. So Jesus is making it very clear. He is the sower. He is the landowner. It's his world, and he's going out to sow the seed. Now, uh, children, what do you think defines good seed? I know some of your families like to garden, and uh, I suppose you have a packet of seeds, and it tells you whether this is some vegetable or other, whether this is corn. I don't know if you've seen secondhand lions, right? They buy all these packs of seeds, and it turns out everyone is just corn, and that's all they get in their garden. But your, your seed would be labeled, and, and what would define a good seed? Well, it would, it would actually be the thing it's supposed to be. That would be one of the, the key characteristics. And uh, I suppose it would germinate. It would actually grow when you put it in the right conditions. And, uh, and then hopefully it wouldn't have uh, any weeds mixed in with it. It would be pure seed. Now, that would be what we would understand to be good seed. And this parable says that Jesus Christ is sowing good seed. In his explanation, he said, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. And so here, seed is representing converted people, uh, which is different. There's another parable in this chapter where seed represents the word, it tells us, being, being sown and being shared. But here, seed represents people who have heard the gospel, responded to it, and been converted. And they've become followers of Jesus. And while our seed that we try to plant in our garden may or may not be that good, Jesus' seed is 100% pure. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, you're one of his people, and you will be planted by him, you will grow, you will produce fruit. That's what the Bible tells us. And isn't it remarkable, Jesus came over 2,000 years ago saying that this is what he was doing, he was planting and he was, he was building up his kingdom by planting good seed and he's still doing it today. People are still coming to faith today. 
and being brought into his kingdom. Jesus is still doing this work of building his kingdom. But we also see here that, secondly, Satan is fighting against Jesus by seeking to build an opposing kingdom. So in verse 25 of the parable, it says, while men slept, that is to say at night, in the darkness, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now tares, that's not a word we use very often. And in your newer translations, it says weeds. And the Greek word that's actually used here uh, is the word for a plant called darnel, which is a plant that looks a lot like wheat. It's sometimes called false wheat. I saw an article that called it wheat's evil twin. Um, Because wheat's evil twin, as it sprouts up, looks a lot like wheat. And it's not until the grain matures that it becomes evident that it's a different plant. And it turns out the seeds of this plant are actually poisonous to humans. If they're eaten in large quantities, they can kill you. If they're eaten in smaller quantities, they are intoxicating. And so one of these articles I read suggested that this might be a reason why uh, this, this, this uh, grain was around, that people were uh, growing it and then using smaller quantities of it uh, to spice up their lives a little bit. Um, but it's a dangerous thing. It's not the real plant. And it was such a problem in those days that Roman law actually forbid anybody to intentionally plant darnel. And so this is something that they would have been very familiar with. And when the servants in the parable look out at the field as the crop is finally maturing, they are seeing so much of this false wheat that they know that this is not right. We, we always see a little bit of these weeds, you know, of different kinds, but to see so many of this weedy kind of false wheat makes them realize something has gone wrong, especially since they know that their master planted good seed. And one of the commentators speaking about this uh, told a story about a field in Western Canada, and uh, the man bought the field, And when uh, the spring came, this field was infested with a kind of daisy that gets in and really grows, you know, across the ground. And he went back to the person he bought it from and said, where is all this weed coming from? And he said, 50 years ago, uh, an enemy of one of my relatives rode on a horse through this field and threw this weed seed. And 50 years later, they were still trying to get rid of this weed. And it's a very difficult thing. So you can imagine someone doing that on purpose. What kind of a person would do that? Well, the parable tells us it's an enemy. uh, And in the explanation, Jesus says this is actually the devil. Uh, This represents the devil. And so it reminds us that the devil is committed to destroying Jesus' work. He is trying to establish his own competing kingdom to Jesus. And these two kingdoms are at war. There's mortal combat that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. And with Jesus arriving on the scene, this battle is only intensifying between the devil and Jesus for supremacy. Verse 38, uh, in the explanation, it says, the field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And that's how the Bible describes everybody in the world as being one of those two things. Children, you're either a wheat or you're a weed. You're either a son of the kingdom or a son 
of the wicked one. It doesn't allow for any neutral way. And notice this says the world is the field. One of the confusing interpretations that's out there is that this parable is all about uh, hypocrites in the church and the, the mixture of people in the church. And it's a sort of a strange uh, thing you come away with, which is like we shouldn't do church discipline or we should just wait for Jesus to come back at the end of the age. We shouldn't deal with it. And so you get some very strange interpretations. But Jesus tells us very clearly, this is a description of our world. And so the whole world breaks down, not into conservatives and progressives or Democrats and Republicans or IU versus Purdue fans, some of the things that we think are very important distinctions. None of that stuff really matters. Ultimately, what matters is whether you're a son of the kingdom, a child of God through Jesus Christ, or if you're not, as it says here, a child of the, the evil one. And uh, this is important for us to understand because just as the devil was creating havoc and the day that Jesus came on the scene, he is still at work today. And we know he's been defeated now that the Lord Jesus has come and, and struck him a mortal blow on the cross. Uh, but he's like that wasp. Sometimes you, you can mortally injure a wasp with your um, fly swatter or something. But if the wasp, you go and step on it with a bare foot, still able to sting you. And very much what the devil, he's, he's mortally wounded, but he's still thrashing around, ready to cause damage. And so we need to understand that. He's still at work in our world. Children, you need to understand that. When, when you disobey your parents, and when you fight with your siblings, you're acting like a, a, a son of the devil, or a daughter of the devil. And uh, we pray that's not what you actually are, but the Lord encourages us. We want to act like we are, which is a child of the kingdom. So the reason there's evil in this world is because Satan is actively fighting against Jesus' kingdom. Well, thirdly, we see here that for the sake of his elect, Jesus allows the kingdom of Satan to persist for a time. So the, uh, uh, his, his servants ask the question that, uh, is very natural. In verse 28, um, he says to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Th this makes sense. Okay, we see there's weeds everywhere. Do you want us to go out and pull up the weeds and get them out of the way? That seems like what we should do. And, and, and we could think, isn't this in fact what Jesus had come to do? First uh, John Chapter 3, verse 8, which is a cross-reference on the back there. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus has come. He has the power to overthrow the devil and to destroy his work. He's able to do it. Why has he chosen not to do it? And, and we can sort of sympathize with the servant's um, the servant's uh, question here. And it's probably the question that's behind this parable, which again is, Lord, why have you not done anything? Why are you not completely eliminating evil? What Jesus says in verse 29, no, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. 
You see what he's saying here? The reason Jesus tarries, the reason Jesus hasn't destroyed evil fully and completely is for the sake of his people. That's a mind bender. But that's what he's saying. It's for your sake, if you're one of his people, that he has allowed evil to persist for a time. And, and so how do we understand that? I mean, after all, we're not plants. We can move away from the, the wicked people and Jesus can strike them with a lightning bolt or whatever. We, we're, we're not, our roots aren't tied up with them. What, what, how does this work? Well, it works because we're in a world... And as long as this world continues to persist, evil is going to be here until Jesus comes again and and then everything's over and the new heavens and the new earth will be established. And he has a very clear purpose in this. I think 2 Peter 3 verses 7 to 9, which is on the back of your outline, are very helpful here. And those verses say, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that last verse is often used Uh, to sort of argue that God wants to save every single person in the world if we will only cooperate with him. But that's not what this is about. This This is an explanation. Why hasn't Jesus come back and put an end to this suffering and evil? It's because he wants to save all of his elect. And until the elect are born and come into existence and live, he's delaying. And and that's one of the side effects, is we have to deal with evil while we wait for the full harvest of God's elect to come in. And and, um, that's, that's an important thing for us to consider. In addition, it seems as if it's also somehow better for us to live in a world in which evil persists now while we wait for glory than to be... Uh, in a fully righteous world immediately. Matthew Henry commenting on this says, God has so ordered it that good and bad should be mixed together in this world, that the good may be exercised, the bad may be left inexcusable, and a difference made between earth and heaven. You understand what it's saying? This is how you are prepared for heaven. If you had heaven on earth now, it wouldn't help prepare you for the, the, the new heavens and the new earth. That dealing with evil and lostness and suffering is part of how God prepares us for eternity. And now we have to be very careful about being glib here. We're not saying, hey, just grin and bear it. It's all for your good. We're not saying, well, you can't do anything to stop evil, so just give up. Don't even try. This is not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, Jesus is saying to us, recognizing that we're very much like the psalmist wanting to cry out, uh, oh Lord, how long? That evil is part of this world and we cry out as we deal with it, but that this is not an accident. This is the way Christ designed it. This is for his good purposes and this will, uh, in the end, bring greater glory and honor to the Lord. 
So the persistence of evil doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have the power. Uh, This means this is how Jesus is working at present. And this is a great encouragement for us. I, I know you parents pray for your children. We should pray for our children. We should pray for our children's spouses. We should pray for our children's children. We should pray for our children's children's spouses and for their children. And we should be thinking about what's going to happen if Jesus doesn't come for a thousand more years. What do we hope is going to be happening in that thousand years? We hope that Jesus is going to be continuing to bring in his people from all over the world. And that there's going to be even more of this wonderful harvest when he comes again. Because every day he delays is is, is him bringing in more people and him working in our lives to help prepare us for heaven. So Jesus is allowing Satan's kingdom to persist for a time for your sake if you're one of his people. But fourthly, we need to rest assured that Jesus will eliminate Satan's kingdom fully and finally. In verse 30, the owner tells his servants, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And in the explanation he gives in Verse 39, he says, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. And then he goes on to say, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's a hard word. Jesus is saying, and he doesn't just say it here, he says it all over the place, he's going to return and there's going to be a final judgment. And the dead will be raised and everyone will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, he explains how judgment has been given to him as the son of man. Jesus uses this, this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, six different times in Matthew's gospel always as a way to describe the ultimate destiny of those who die outside of Christ as, uh, as experiencing conscious, eternal torment. And uh, it, it is a very sobering doctrine. But although it may be difficult for us, we recognize that this doctrine is a blessing if we understand it properly. Uh, for one thing, if this is true, we are all in mortal danger. And so the warning to us is an opportunity for us to recognize the peril that we're in and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. I'm sure I've told you before, one of our uh, late night hockey games years ago, our whole team was in a hotel. We got back to the hotel very late at night and uh, had to play the next day. And it was like, five in the morning or something like that when the fire alarm went off and we all had to get up and stagger outside and when we found out that it was a six-year-old kid who was up playing with the fire alarms we weren't very happy about that at all now if there had been a fire uh, we would have been hailing that kid as a hero and uh, Jesus giving this warning is uh, he's pulling the fire alarm but there is a fire and, uh, and so we need that. That is a blessing that he warns us. Uh, 
In addition, we have here in this a promise that our universe is ultimately just and moral and that justice is going to be done. And you think about the people in Ukraine right now who have lost loved ones, women, children, slaughtered. And how do you fix that? How can anyone uh, live and not just lose their minds without some doctrine of eternal justice being accomplished? That the fact that Jesus does promise to right every wrong and to completely eliminate evil is a blessing to us. And that's also a wonderful promise for us that everything evil is going to be removed from the world. And that's hard for us to get our minds around because everything in this world is tainted by sin in some way or another. We can't even really understand what that would mean. But this says that Jesus promises to remove all things that offend. All of Satan's kingdom is going to be wiped out. Uh, the, the shorter catechism, and I put this question and answer 102 in your outline. What do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? The second petition of the Lord's Prayer is thy kingdom come. What are we praying for when we pray that God's kingdom would come? And the catechism says we pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. And if you understand that there are these two kingdoms in mortal war with each other, one kingdom cannot come in its fullness until the other kingdom is removed. And that's what Jesus is promising. One day his kingdom will come in its fullness because he will remove every vestige of the kingdom of evil that plagues us. And so there's a sober warning there, but it is a word of encouragement to us as we rest and trust in Jesus. And finally, we see here that Jesus is the righteous landowner who brings you into eternal blessedness with him. Because Jesus says in verse 30 that the wheat is gathered. He, he gathers his wheat into the barn. His good crop is with him. And then if you read how he explains this, uh, in verse 43, what, what does it mean to be gathered uh, into the barn? It says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What, what's actually fascinating as Jesus describes this in verses 42 and following, he, he describes his angels rooting out all the sons of wickedness and removing them and then Sort of what he's saying is, my people will stand uh, in their righteousness. And, and so the picture really is of his people continuing to bear fruit and to serve him. And how can they be righteous, right? We know that no one is righteous except God alone. But it's because Jesus is going to make us righteous. And, and commentators have noticed, again, there is, a, there is the book of Daniel in the background of what he says here. Because when he talks about the fiery furnace in verse 42, this is about as close to that phrase that you get in, in the book of Daniel anywhere else in the Bible. There is this furnace of fire. But then uh, later in the book of Daniel, it talks about how God's people are perfected. And I put Daniel 12 verses 2 and 3 
in your outline. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That, that sounds a lot like resurrection. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And what Jesus is saying there is he is that righteous landowner who gives his people his righteousness, who walks into the flame of fire and this burning that's described that's for the weeds. He goes in there for his people and he suffers for them and he brings us out alive and unscathed and more than that makes us righteous and as this says allows us to stand shining like the sun there's only one who shines like the sun and that's the lord jesus christ and yet in him he enables us to shine like the stars and like the sun as it says in colossians 1 verses 12 and following that we give thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We're a part of the kingdom of light and the promises we will shine like he does for all eternity as we're brought into his presence and in fellowship with him. And so even as we get up tomorrow morning and we see again in the news, however we take it in, of all the evil that's still in the world, we remember Every day, we're one day closer to when Jesus comes again. Every day is another day of Jesus bringing in his people. Every day is another day of him preparing you and me more uh, fully to be ready for heaven. And when we see the evil that's in the world, we should not be surprised. We should be grieved. We should be driven to prayer. Uh, If we're able, we should be driven to action. This parable doesn't preclude any of those things. But what this parable does tell you is you should never be surprised. I find myself saying that. I can't believe that the Russians invaded Ukraine. Why can't you believe that? This is the story of the world we live in until Jesus comes again. It's grievous, but it doesn't mean Jesus isn't on his throne. The Lord Jesus had allowed these things to happen until his people are brought in. And he will come back and he will gather the harvest. And this is a great encouragement to us because when you look around and you see there is wheat in the world. Children, when, when the garden actually starts to grow and you see the plants that you planted, you know that the seed was good. And if we look around and we see Jesus' kingdom is here, it reminds us that he's at work. He is at work. It's easy for us to have all our focus on the weeds. But the fact is that the wheat is there and he's building this great kingdom. And what a blessing to be a part of it. Jesus does allow evil to exist for a time, but he does it for the sake of his people. Trust him, turn to him, and trust him, and recognize he's going to come back and put all things right. Let's pray, and we'll ask for his grace in this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for
the many different ways your word teaches us. We have uh, letters like 1 Corinthians that we're studying. We have narratives like the book of Numbers and uh, much of what's in the book of Mark, as Philip has been teaching us. Uh, We have law, we have prophecy, and we have these wonderful wisdom teachings of parables. And we thank you how through these word pictures that our Lord painted and used so effectively, he teaches us important truths about the kingdom. We thank you that the kingdom is here and that the presence of evil does not negate that in any way. Lord, we ask that you would work in the world. We ask that you would hasten the day when you would return. But we pray that you would accomplish your good purposes for us and for all your people in the interval. Lord, we can't imagine how our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are dealing with the, uh, the tension and the trouble and the bloodshed that they're under. But Lord, we know that you are still on your throne and we pray that you would show yourself strong and we thank you that you will come again and root out everything that is evil from this world and will renew it and will enable your people to shine like the sun as they serve you. Help us to live faithfully now, even as we await that great day. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. And let's uh, sing back to the Lord uh, once again from Psalm 72. And for this one, we're going to use the uh, Maroon book, our older psalm book. So if you find Psalm 72, uh, selection C, this speaks about his growing kingdom like a field planted with wheat. There's growing grain, and um, the field continues to grow and to produce. This is the kingdom of our Lord and his great work. So we'll sing stanzas 9 to 11, and then pause for the benediction, and then we'll sing stanza 12 as our doxology. Let's stand and sing together.